Welcome to the Ardella Training Podcast, the leader in no-fluff, no-BS strength training for athletes and fitness enthusiasts around the world. Each episode is dedicated to cutting-edge information to get you stronger and improve your performance. And now, here's your host. He's been called the scientist of strength, Scott Ardella. Hey, what's going on? And thanks for joining me today for this week's show, episode number 44. I've got an exciting session for you today with Dr. Jonathan Foss, who joined me for a great discussion on strength and performance training. We covered a lot of ground here, and I had a a great time doing this interview. So make sure that you listen all the way through to hear some really awesome advice and perspective from Jonathan. Before we dive into this interview, as a reminder, if you could drop a quick review in iTunes or Stitcher, it would be greatly appreciated. All right, let me give you the rundown on Dr. Jonathan Foss. Jonathan has a major background as a strength coach, physical therapist, and researcher. Currently, he's a private physical therapist for a billionaire investor and philanthropist in Saudi Arabia. I'll let him further explain his current role, and it's an amazing story. Jonathan is a graduate of the first doctoral class in the City University of New York and attended his orthopedic physical therapy residency at the University of Delaware. It was this experience at University of Delaware that facilitated his expertise in the area of clinical research. And you'll hear much more about that and how you can benefit from better understanding research in this interview. He also worked at Rutgers University as a strength coach and part-time instructor. And you'll hear about his unique experiences at Rutgers and how he approached working with his athletes. This is really good insight he shares here about his Rutgers experience. Jonathan is also a certified strength and conditioning specialist. He's a USAW weightlifting coach and an art practitioner. Art is active release technique. And I was I was able to ask him about this so you can learn more about how this could fit into your training and recovery approach. And finally, Dr. Foss has written for many print and online publications, including Men's Health and Men's Fitness. And he's a fellow podcaster. You can find him on the FitCast podcast and also the Strength of Evidence podcast, where he does a show with Brett Contreras. Also, just as a reminder, I had the pleasure to interview Brett for episode number 34. So if you haven't heard that, be sure to go back and check that out as well. Now, Jonathan is a super smart guy. And like I said, this is a really fun and really informative interview session. And and I know that you'll get value from it. So with that, let's get started. All right. Joining me today is physical therapist, strength coach, and fellow podcaster, Dr. Jonathan mm-hmm. Foss. <laughs> Jonathan, thanks for being here and looking forward to a great chat this morning. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. And I love doing these interviews with amazing people like yourself. So let's jump right into this. So you have a really unique background as a physical therapist and strength coach. Can you tell listeners about your background and specifically what you do and where you are? Absolutely. Well, I I started off basically as a personal trainer wanting to go into physical therapy. 
career switch. Um, I actually studied uh, politics and history in college. I thought I would be a lawyer or maybe go into business or something like that. But I fell into physical therapy. I found out about it. And it was one of those kind of Zen moments where you say, that's perfect. That's exactly what I want to do. So what had happened was I became a personal trainer as part of that progression to find out if I could actually do this sort of stuff because I was not a science, necessarily a science-based individual, you know, I was more of humanities and art and stuff. Yeah. So throughout that process, you know, I became a personal trainer and then fell into um, some strength coaching at Rutgers, which I think we'll probably get into a little bit later. And uh, then went through grad school, put myself through grad school as a personal trainer, and then um, eventually became a physical therapist from there. So it's been a, it's been a great kind of ride because being a personal trainer has informed me as a physical therapist and then it goes back. So it's this sort of uh, back and forth sort of thing, which is really uh, enjoyable. But as far as where I am now, I am actually in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Um, I, during, I took a residency at the University of Delaware as the uh, orthopedic resident there. And during that, uh, the um, Delaware was contacted by a Saudi prince, uh, His Royal Highness Prince Abdullah bin Talal bin Abdulaziz al Saud. Wow. Um, he is the nephew of King Abdullah. He's on, you know, he's one of the richest men in the world. He's, a, he's an investor, basically. He's a humanitarian, uh, an investor, a businessman. And he basically, when you're worth 25 some odd billion with a B dollars, you can have a physical therapist around. Yeah. Just. You know, just in case something, you know, oh, my, my toe hurts, fix it, you know, sort of thing. So, <laughs> right, right. Um, so the old therapist was leaving and um, he was looking for a new one and he does prefer to have like a westernized therapist because we tend, you know, we tend to be maybe a little bit better uh, educated than some other areas in the world. So he likes to have a U.S.-based uh, physical therapist. And I went out there with a few other guys and... Um, was interviewed for like a week and, you know, saw how everything goes and this and that. And at the end of the, the week, they said, okay, it's, you know, it's your job to turn down. And, and that's basically how it went. So I've been here for almost four years now. And wow. that's what I do. Wow. Now, so who all do you work with? I mean, are you just working with your, um, your client or, I mean, how many people, different types of people do you work with? Right. I, essentially, it's just him. the fact of the matter is I basically uh, take care of anyone in the entourage. And I mean, he gotcha. has uh, 30 or 40 people that are that he'll travel with. You know, when we when we go traveling and we travel a lot, I've seen uh, something like 35 different countries already or something like that. Um, yes. But so it, technically, I mean, in theory, I'm in care for everyone. Um, I care for the family, I care for, you know, anyone that's that's within the immediate kind of vicinity. And then of course I, I work with people as still doing some training stuff online and things like that, which keeps me in that part of the industry as well that I enjoy a lot, but it is certainly different than being a resident and working like 12, 14 hour days. And yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> the kind of that, uh, that I started off as, uh, uh, in my career, but it's a much, much simpler job now. And on a given day and an average day, I'm probably working for about 12 minutes. Wow. So, wow. Fantastic. Yeah, like, nice. <laughs> it's, 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 Got a little extra time there to train and some other stuff, I guess, huh? Yeah, right. Exactly. I, I, you know, it, it's, been a, it's been enjoyable because it allows me to do a lot of research. It does allow yeah. me to do a lot of reading and, and get into areas um, that I probably would never have had time to or even known of uh, if I was working full time. But I am still clinician at heart. I love being in the clinic and I love working with people. So Fantastic. I am looking forward to the time when I do return to that 
that life as well. But yeah. uh, something like this, you just don't pass up. You know? Yeah, so. that is a really, really unique situation. I, I didn't realize how unique <laughs> that actually was, but man. Yeah. Fantastic. Hey, let me ask you this. Let me ask you about your um, personal training approach. And, you know, what mm-hmm. I'm asking is how do you train? So you have a lot of free time on your hands, as you just mentioned. So what, right. what do you do with your own training? Um, generally speaking, I'm not, you know, I've never been the kind of guy that I want to break world records in powerlifting. You know, I, mean? I don't know that I really could anyway. But um, <laughs> what I generally look for is is almost like a... I guess a mixed bag. I want to be healthy. I want to be healthy. I want to be strong. I want to be relatively lean. I want to be able to do something. You know, if something comes up, I want to be able to do it. Yeah. You know, if it's climbing stairs or running or whatever, you know, biking or swimming or whatever comes up, I want to be able to do that. And I don't want to be, oh, no, 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 I can't enjoy this activity because I'm not in good enough shape. So I think that that's kind of what informs my training. I, I like to use body weight. Um, I like to use um, some plyo kind of stuff and, and explosive training. I like to just basically lift weights and move weight, you know. Yeah. Um, but I don't – I wouldn't say that I tend to do any specific type of style. You know, it's not – I'm not an Olympic weightlifter. I'm not a powerlifter. I'm not a crossfitter. You know, it's just a general approach to feeling good, looking good. And I, that's probably what most people – when it boils down to this, what they do too. You yeah. Know, so. Yeah. Yeah. Now, so what kind of, uh, tools do you have access to out there? Do you have access to, uh, to barbells and, uh, gym equipment, yeah, kettlebells? I mean, anything what happens is when you're a Westerner living in Saudi Arabia, you will almost certainly live on a compound. So you don't necessarily live in the, the general population. Um, and within compound, you, you do that because, it's a very restrictive society, Saudi Arabia, but within the compounds, there's, it's uh, basically a, an agreement with westernized companies that, that come here that maybe work in the oil or maybe work in the diplomatic quarters or something like that, that the um, religious police, the Motawa, and that, yes, they have religious police here as well as a regular police force, do not come in, which means that the, the laws that apply to the Saudi population do not necessarily apply within the compound. So you can dress the way you want to. You can associate with people the way that you want to. Outside, you can't sit with a woman if you're not related to her. You can't, you know, women aren't allowed to dress certain ways. You're you're not allowed to be out on the streets during prayer times and things like this. Yeah. So within the compound, you have freedom. Yeah. So within my compound, um, you know, I have pools, tennis courts, basketball courts, things like that. And I also have a gym and that's the gym that I use. I could use outside gyms, but I really you know, it's too convenient to just walk across the street in my gym. So there's some limitations here. I have barbells, but I don't have a squat rack. Uh, I have dumbbells. They're not, you know, they go up to maybe, what do they go up to? 90, 95 pounds, which is okay. But, yeah. you know, there are some things that maybe that is a little too light for. Um, so the facilities are somewhat limited relative to what I would like to have. You know, they have some kettlebells, but they're like plasticky things that, go up to like 16 kilo or something, you know? Yeah. But at the same time, I've got pull-up bars. You know, I do have bars. I have dumbbells. Um, I have some of my own toys that I might bring along and sort of allows me to, to, I have to be creative, get more and like unilateral training, um, you know, as opposed to just bilateral plotting and bilateral deadlifting all the time. But uh, within that, I've kind of enjoyed it because it has forced me to look at different ways of training, being more gymnastic 
type of training and working planches and levers and things like that that maybe I wouldn't have done otherwise. So it's it's been yeah. fun. Well, it sounds like you have uh, enough to make it work, you know, and you, and you do yeah. you do well with what you have, really. I mean, that's what it comes right. down that's to. That's exactly so. what it is. <laughs> yeah. All right. Hey, now you mentioned that you were a um, you worked at Rutgers as a strength coach here. Do you want to talk about that experience yeah, and kind of your your yeah. training, the, the the focus with your athletes there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was. Rutgers was a fantastic place to be. I was. I found myself there. I was an undergrad there. I graduated from Rutgers College in 2000. But I found myself back there when I was pursuing my physical therapy degree because I needed to fulfill all the science requirements that I didn't have. Uh, when I was originally an undergraduate. So I was taking post-baccalaureate courses. Um, I had started that actually at Columbia University in New York, but they are very expensive. So yeah. after about a year and a <laughs> half, I was very broke and um, went back to Rutgers where a class is the same amount of money as a credit at Columbia. So you know, I kind of sat down with myself and said, okay, it's cool to be in New York at Columbia University, but if I'm not getting a degree. What the hell am I doing spending so much money? So I found myself back at Rutgers and it was a blessing because I didn't have money anymore. I'd spent it all on my, uh, at, at Columbia. I started working again. So I'd taken you know, some time off just to pursue courses, but then I had no choice but to return to work. So I started working in, in health and recreation department um, and, you know, first started off as like a personal trainer there, but they really, it was, it was a fantastic opportunity because you could get into everything. And I ended up being a group instructor and like, you know, group strength training, boot camp, kind of stuff. I ended up, um, teaching there. I would guest lecture courses. I, I was a lab instructor there as well. And then I had the opportunity to work with the, the sports club teams. So, um, these are the teams that, um, you know, it's kind of like your, your, rugby teams and your soccer club, club soccer and, um, water polo, um, Taekwondo club a few times, lots of different varied sports that are really cool. And again, it's, it's the sort of thing that you're not dealing with the, the major, um, athletic training department itself. You're not working with the the Rutgers football team at, at the, the Bush campus, you know, gym where you have everything known to man. Yeah. We had a couple platforms, Olympic bars and bumper plates and stuff like that. So you have your whole team come in, you'd have like 12, 15 at a time or whatever. And you're running around like a crazy person. You've got two or three athletes on a, you know, on a platform, they're doing stuff. You're, you're running around being crazy. And it was just a fantastic time. It was, it was really an educational experience for me to be able to work with that many athletes all at once, you know, I've probably seen a couple hundred, nice. you know, in the couple of years that I've, that I had worked there, but it was also trial by fire. You know, you're not the assistant strength coach. You are the strength coach. They're relying on you when you are everything there. You are the, you know, the strength coach, you're the, um, you know, kind of like the, the athletic trainer, if they're injured, you're everything. Right. So it was, it was a really fun experience. Um, nice. got to work with a lot of really dedicated kids, got to learn a lot of really different sports, sports that I'd never, you know, been involved in. Like I never played rugby, but I had to learn about that. And it was, yeah. it was really fun and, uh, got kids pretty strong and they, they ended up being pretty successful. And that was, that was really rewarding. Awesome. So let me ask you about that. What was the approach with the, the different, so rugby, you had soccer mm-hmm. and, um, you know, what was, what was the approach with them? Was it all Olympic lifting or was it kind of this sport specific for their sport or how did it, you handle it? You know, 
I think what it what generally depends on is the type of athlete, the caliber of athlete that you're working with. So if you're working with, um, you know, a professional athlete in the highest levels of sport, then I think in that sense, you're probably looking at keeping them healthy and being able to express the power and the strength that they already have and the skill sets that they already have. They're at the highest level. But when you're dealing with with you know, college athletes and even, even the, the college athletes, again, if I was working at, at Rutgers football, I think it still becomes a matter of where is their potential versus where they're at. I think it, at that point, most of the time you're dealing with still getting them stronger, getting them faster, getting them more powerful. Um, and you want to do that safely, obviously, but you want to, that's your focus. So sports specific, there was always a time and place for that, but I'm not necessarily the type of coach, you know, we're not swinging weighted bats for the baseball team. You know what I mean? Yeah, I yeah. think it would become the type of thing where let's take my soccer players, for instance, you know, most of them would be pulling cleans uh, either from the floor or the hang, but maybe my, my goalie would take a snatch because yeah. they do have to get their hands up pretty quickly. You know what I mean? So yeah, it might yeah. be something along those lines, but what I don't think is that we're really, I, I don't, I've never seen, enough evidence to really suggest that the best way to go about it is to just mimic what they do right. on the field of play. They're pre- getting practice. So they're expressing their, their skill sets on the field and they're learning new skill sets on the field with their coach. What I have to do is to get them strong and fast so that when they learn these new skills, they can apply it efficiently and effectively. So I generally speaking, I think that you just basically want to make your athletes strong and powerful. And then there comes a point where maybe as they're reaching their, their a closer point to that potential, you're, you're weighing the, you know, the, how much weight they're gaining versus their strength. And now you're getting into more of a, you know, an efficiency standpoint, but a lot of times it's just, Hey man, you know, Everything being equal, the stronger athlete is going to be the better one if their skills and everything else is equal. So that's kind of the approach that I tend to take on it. Going back to Olympic lifting training, what, I'm just curious on this, but what, was, what would you say the learning curve is for athletes in general with Olympic lifts? Sometimes they are unreal. I mean, it, it can be impressive when you're working with an athlete and you teach them something and like two sessions later, they're doing it better than you are. That's amazing. You know, you're yeah, like, it's yeah. humbling, you know? Yeah. Um, it depends on the athlete, but right. a lot of these, you know, I would, for the most part, I think even the, the ones that had not worked with me previously, by the end of a season, they were, they were having some pretty nice lifts. And if they'd been around with me for, you know, two, three seasons, they were just gorgeous. You know I mean? Yeah. They were just yeah. pulling just wonderful lifts. So their, their learning curve is, is pretty impressive. It can, it can really fly. Now there's the other type of athlete that is an amazing athlete at their sport. And then they're not really a great gym jock, you know, and that's fine too, because they're not getting awards on who lifts the strongest or, you know, has the best technique. They're, they're winning awards on the field of play. So I'm not worried so much about that athlete, but um, all things being equal, some of these, some of these guys are, are just scary good and, and they can really adapt to just anything. You give them something and they excel at it. So, right. um, but, but with Olympic lifting, especially, I think that there's, there's always that moment where the athlete gets it, Yeah, you know, at yeah. first it just becomes teaching and learning and they're lifting, but there's a point where they get, you know, there's that fire in their eyes and they attack the bar and you see that in the lift and you go, okay, now they got it. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that's always a great moment when you're teaching those lifts. It's that when you see them attack the bar, you go, now they got it. And now we're going to start adding weight. Now they're going to, they're going to take off. All right. 
So you mentioned technique and, you know, this is really um, a critical topic, a really important mm-hmm. point. Do you think we're emphasizing technique too much or, or not enough? It, I th- it, you know, it's a great question. And I think that um, it does depend on the individual. And I say this because it's not all biomechanics, right? It's not, it is not the only way to experience pain or to be injured of any type is not just biomechanics. And if it was, then, then technique would be absolutely paramount and you could not vary from it whatsoever. But we know that that's not entirely the case. So I think what happens is you preach technique early and often, uh, a new athlete, a new trainee, whatever it is, Technique, technique, technique. You want them doing these things pretty flawlessly because you're not pushing weight yet. You're not pushing power yet. You want them to learn it. But as an athlete or, you know, whoever, your client, whatever, as they progress, as they've pulled lifts, you know, countless times, and as you get closer and closer to their rep max and to their ability to express their, their full, you know, strength, you're going to have, you know, wiggle room there. Um, I think it's not, it's not an issue of seeing bad form once in one rep. It's an issue of seeing this over and over again, where you say, okay, we need to clean that. Right. But when you're pulling, you know, 85, 90% and above, you're probably going to see some deviations in form. And it's up to the coach to decide whether that deviation is something to point out or something not to worry about because it probably was just that day. Now that doesn't mean necessarily that you push bad form, but it's a difference between stopping, breaking it down, fixing versus saying, okay, you know, you're a little tired today or getting them to focus so they can get past that because sometimes it's just focus. So I don't think someone's, you know, spine is going to explode because they were a little bit forward on that last rep, you know, but if I see that over and over again, I think I'd like to fix it. If for no other reason, then perhaps this may help them in performance later on, but I'm not, always worried that, oh my God, you know, something's going to happen and you're going to be injured because it just doesn't, doesn't quite happen that way. Yeah. So maybe there is this kind of fine line between, uh, being too, uh, critical on technique. Yeah. I uh, I think so. I think it also depends on the athlete herself because every athlete is going to respond to these things differently. Uh, some of them look at that technique criticism as a criticism of their ability to perform the exercise you know they take it internally yeah so for these athletes you want to tell them what they were you know express it in a way of you know this was great this was good let's put i want to think about doing this now you know versus the athlete that just picks up on it right away you know they'll tell you what they did wrong yeah you know and then that's an athlete that's great too but you just i think that there is a there can is the potential of danger in saying that something is bad um, when we don't really have the right to suggest that. Now, granted, if someone's knees knock together in their squat, that's probably not great. Yeah, so but if it's a safety have, issue, then you you really do need to intervene and, and try to fix and right, clean things exactly. up. Right. But there's there's you know, there's variations of normal, there's variations of lifting based on the weight and, and whatever. It's up to us to to provide the safest environment, but not a squeaky clean, you know, environment where no one pushes boundaries at any points either. So I think it does become knowing your athlete, knowing their history. Look, if this athlete does have a history of back pain, I'm going to be really kind of focused on making sure that they're getting good lifts in. But if this athlete is otherwise uninjured and they, you know, again, they're pushing their rep max that day, I'm not really that worried about them, you know, and I do think that we do have to be cognizant of the 
psychosocial aspects of how pain is expressed and what we can do through our words to that athlete's psyche. Right. And I think that that's a very important thing that that we all need to consider. Yeah. And and how we label good lift, bad lift, you know, things like this. It can you can get into trouble and not even realize it. Yeah. Well, let me let me follow up on this. So when you have an athlete that's coming in kind of session to session, would you maybe just give them a a new cue each session if you see something not not anything going wrong where it's a safety issue, but just to right. help them improve technique. Do you think it's okay to just give, you know, kind of these cues every session to improve and build on technique? Sure, absolutely. And okay. I think what you generally try to do is you try to focus on the most important things first, and then you, you get down to the details as time progresses. So, yeah. you know, the, most of the time it's going to be something like hip hinges or it's going to be, you know, which is breaking first or the knees or the hips breaking first or whatever. So, the first cues are almost always just squeeze your butt, squeeze your abs, you right. know, and, and let everything else fall into play. I don't care where their knees went at that point. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it's not, I'm not worried about where they're looking. Um, I want their general position to be good. Once that happens, now we can talk about, okay, where's the pressure? Are you in your toes or on your heels? Where's your shoulders? Are they squeezed back? Or are they rounding forwards? You know, smaller details that will have probably smaller impacts on their ability to lift, but are still valuable and are still important. Sure. Um, so I think there's, there is a, probably a sweet spot. And I think in, in terms of how much you cue, I think that it is somewhat different from athlete to athlete or individual to individual, but essentially you don't want to overload them at first. If you're overloading them, they can't focus on anything. So make it yeah. simple. Squeeze right. your butt. Did you feel it in the, in the butt? Did you, you know, did you, did you come up and feel it in the glutes and contraction? Great. That's all we do today. Yeah. You know, or we try to integrate it. Great. Now I want you to squeeze your abs too. So make it, make everything tight, make everything, you know, just like a rock. But I'm not, again, I'm not worried about bring your eyes up, bring your this up. And I've heard that and I've seen that. And all we're going to do is confuse the athlete. Yeah. Let them figure it out. Most of the time, a lot of these issues just solve themselves by getting to the basis of the, the primary form, the, the most important aspects of it, the neutral spine or whatever. Right. Um, but, you know, over time, for sure, I mean, you know, I want elbows up high or I want you know, the needs to come out a little bit more, you know, to track over the toes or whatever. And all that stuff is valuable. And if they're completely, you know, if they can do this stuff in their sleep, then yeah. that's not going to distract them from their lift. That's going to enhance it. But if they're still unsure about their position and they can't replicate a rep, you know, over and over again with proficiency, then I'm not getting into any more of the details unless I think that the detail itself is what's causing the problem. Right. And sometimes that can be the case. Yeah, well, I think that makes a lot of sense is really start with the general, the, the important principles, and then drill down into the details. Yeah. So, I mean, that's yeah. essentially what you're saying. I and, totally agree. And I agree. think that, you know, I've seen where where someone, you know, they, they kind of want to do everything, you know, and they're, they're, they see all the problems and they want to correct all the problems or, or maybe they just want to kind of feel or appear like they know what they're talking about. But the fact of the matter is that the, over time, the better the coach, the less they talk. Yeah. You know, you just let the athlete figure it out for themselves and you just guide <laughs> right. as opposed to trying to knit every little, you know, piece stitch together. So the better the, the coach, the less you have to say to get that point across. Right, right. 
Jonathan, I wonder if you could just maybe touch on kind of before an athlete gets under a bar, what, what do you look at as far as kind of screening for movement and maybe looking mm-hmm. at risk for injury? Right. I, I don't, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I've had this debate about FMS stuff for like years now. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't, there are, there are things that are sport specific. So depending on the sport, we know certain areas may or may not be more likely to be injury source areas, you know, yeah. um, you know, I'm thinking like a baseball player with their shoulder or possibly low back, or I'm thinking a soccer player with their knees or hips, you know? Right. Um, and so within that, when you're dealing with that sport, you're going to look at the common areas. You're going to look at the athlete's history because the history is going to tell you more than anything else. Any kind of screen we have, any kind of anything, has this athlete been injured and where has this area been? Um, right. But other than that, I think that it just becomes a, essentially a kind of movement assessment. So what are the things that I want them to be able to do in the gym and are they capable of doing that? You know, if I want someone to squat, they don't have, I don't know, the hip mobility to do so or the strength to maintain a neutral spine that to me is more indicative of a potential of of a possible injury than than an unweighted you know overhead squat or something like that um i want to look at mobility i want to look at general ranges of motion do they have that do they not have that and what do we need to do to achieve that and that's all sports specific as well because again like if i'm a soccer player i i you know, they will have throw-ins, so granted, but I'm probably not as worried about their shoulders as, again, I might be with their knees or their hips and their hip mobility. Um, so it will depend on that sport, that position, uh, the athlete's history, and what the athlete, him or herself, believes are their weak spots, too. And I think that that's also important because if you have an athlete coming in, um, let's say he's a basketball player and he's a center, well, basketball centers get knees and backs, you know, that they that their knees get killed. Yeah. If they've been following someone's career and they've had, you know, knee surgeries, then this athlete is conditioned to believe that the knee is a bad place. And I want to know that because if something happens or if the potential of something might happen, now again, we're going back to like the biopsychosocial aspects of, of pain they're probably more likely to experience pain itself. So I want to know about that. And I want to address that both through strength training, but also through my, my education to the athlete. I want them to know that they can do things and not to be afraid of things. I, I think that that has far more to do with injury prevention than, than just about anything else that we can do. And there's evidence that supports that idea. So um, making sure that the athlete is confident and confident in their abilities is just as valuable as strengthening them when it comes to injury prevention, in my opinion. Let me ask you this. What are your thoughts on the CrossFit training approach, benefits and potential dangers there? You know, um, it's a really interesting subject. Um, I do, you know, like you said, uh, with the uh, the podcast, so the, the strength of evidence that I do with Brett Contreras, we look yeah. at that. Um, there is not a lot of evidence right now for it. There's much more in terms of like expert opinion. And and of course the opinion is this could be a bad thing. Um, I agree with that. I think that it could be a bad thing. I also think that it could be a good thing. And and I think like with anything else, first we have to be fair to it. So, um, people talk about, well, CrossFit doesn't train their trainers well enough. And I'm like, well, but does, do personal trainers get trained well enough? You know, now there is a difference because CrossFit uses Olympic lifts, high rep stuff, um, you know, box jumps and things like this. So there is a degree of detail there that may not be present 
in the average personal trainer, but they, they have access to those exercises like anyone else. So yes, I think it does require a certain degree of proficiency and excellence in order to coach these properly and safely. But, um, does that necessarily mean that the average CrossFit gym does not have that? The answer is, I don't know. Um, I think that there are a lot of really good quality, um, coaches that I'm familiar with that, that, have either CrossFit gyms or associate themselves with CrossFit in one way or another. So I think CrossFit in and of itself has the potential to be great. You know, you're, there's the limited, limited, limited research that's been done has shown these like fantastic results from it, the approach, but it also showed at least in this one study injuries, a yeah. lot of them. So you kind of get worried. You go, hmm, maybe there is something to that, that injury process. I think what we should be asking ourselves is, can we change CrossFit to address the potential of these injuries and still keep it as CrossFit? You know, I, I think that there, that's really the question here because yeah. there are things about CrossFit that absolutely appeal to the people that, that do it. There's a camaraderie. It's, it's people – you know, cheer each other on, you know, they have these like Halloween party workouts and, you know, we've all seen it on like Facebook and like we have that friend that's in CrossFit and everything is CrossFit and they love it. Yeah. So can we eliminate the rah-rah, which does egg people on, which does possibly make them do more than they would have been capable of, but is that the point where we're getting, you know, that high injury potential yeah. can we eliminate that and still have something where people are getting that rah rah support i think that we can i mean that's like any any you know a, a gym with athletes right that's how we train our athletes they all work out together we don't do one-on-one stuff we do group training and and you've got guys that are you know pushing each other but at the same time is there something different about an athlete versus an average individual using crossfit you know, we can't necessarily compare the two groups either. So yeah. um, I think the potential of, of making someone that's really a jack of all trades, someone that's interested, you know, most people, like I said at the beginning, interested in losing some weight, being kind of strong. And let's face it, you know, despite what like powerlifters say, CrossFit, CrossFit athletes are generally strong. You know, like what is strength? They're, to me, these guys are strong. You know, if they can pull a body weight deadlift that's more than what the average individual on the street can do yeah and if they can pull two times body weight then i'm pretty impressed with that right and it's not a world breaker by any means but that's a strong individual they can do everything in their life and then some sure so i think that stuff like that is a great approach um but right now as of right now if i had a friend say oh i'm going to join this crossfit gym and i didn't know anything else about it in terms of the qualifications of the instructors how they approach CrossFit in and of itself, I would be hesitant to, to recommend it because I do think that there's some risk and until we, we know otherwise, um, it's kind of a do no harm in yeah. my opinion. Well, I think you laid out some nice um, examples there. Kind of really what I asked is, you know, benefits and, and potential dangers. And you did a really nice job yeah. of laying that out. You referenced a study that was uh, recently published in the journal Strength yep. and Conditioning. Uh, really, really interesting article. It was a 16% dropout rate. I wrote a, right. a, a big article on that. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, may, maybe there will be some good that will come out of that article, you know, like yeah, you said, I, where they can kind of look at the CrossFit model and look to reduce that, that injury rate. So, Right. Yeah. I think that that study, it was very – it's problematic to take anything from it, anything. Yeah. Um, the dropout rate means that whatever the, the benefits that they saw through the study, we don't know – you know, dropout rates like that really make you 
um, question findings because now we don't know what these individuals who dropped out, what they would have done. Could they, would we have seen higher rates of, of um, improvement or would we have seen lower rates because these were the people that were not improving well and then eventually became injured? Uh, good you know? point. Good point. Um, we don't know what those injuries were because the study wasn't designed to report on injuries. So do we know if these were serious injuries? Do we know the duration of the injury, what type and how, what occurred. We don't even actually know if they occurred during the CrossFit training. So they could be entirely unrelated, although, you know, we kind of think that's probably not the case, but we do have to be careful that it doesn't feed into our own bias. So even if we think CrossFit would be injurious and then we see a study like this, we say, aha, see, it caused all these injuries. The fact is maybe it didn't. Um, But I agree with you. I think that not having anything else and considering the expert opinion at the time where everyone is kind of looking at the same thing and saying, maybe this is going to happen. And then lo and behold, the first study that actually looks at this has a, has a dropout rate of injury. That's pretty high. We can, we can take some information from it, but I, I, it's certainly not conclusive. I think we still have to see more, but I agree with you. It's this kind of thing that makes you kind of raise an eyebrow and then say, all right, at this point, I'd like to see, the you know CrossFit proved to be not you know that this was just an anomaly versus assuming that it's safe. I have and, to say, and, I have to commend you on your deep thought about the analysis on that study because you're absolutely right. I mean, there are so many things we don't know about that dropout yeah. rate and yep. things that I I didn't actually consider until you just mentioned them right now. But you're you're absolutely right. And that's why, you know, you look at one study and one study is never conclusive. It's just a, no, a piece in especially, the, yeah. Right. It, especially in physiology. I mean, it's no, no disrespect to physiology researchers because they do amazing jobs, but there's, there's significant limitations in how we research physiology and, and physical therapy and all of these kind of health related fields. When, when you compare things like, you know, we bash like drug trials a lot and, and reasonably so because we do know that there have been um, trials that have been kind of uh, subdued and squandered and, and you know, uh, big pharma, so to speak. There, there can be problems there. But these are trials that are done on thousands and tens of thousands of individuals. And then you look at our trials that have like 20. Yeah. <laughs> it, it means nothing. You know, it, these trials mean nothing. If we have a substantial amount of literature, that's one thing. But a single study with, uh, what was it, like 36 or something participants in that, that CrossFit study? Yeah. That's nice. And that's about all you can say about it. It's <laughs> right. not because of the researchers doing a poor job. It's just it's a, it's a matter of how this type of research is done. So you need to see a lot of studies. And I'm always amazed at, like, um, the example I used is the Higgs boson in, in physics. Um, when they decided to announce that they were fairly confident in the existence of the Higgs boson, they were at a five sigma level. So that's like your p-value. Um, and now they're at like seven or eight sigma. That's like a point oh 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 three, you know, type of level of confidence. And we're talking about point oh five. Um, you're th- there's such a drastic difference in how we produce evidence versus some of the other scientific fields. And when you realize that, you realize like, wow, you know, I, I really shouldn't be so confident in the things that I believe are are true based on like two or three studies that support what I think is going on. Um, the, the fact of the matter is that it's, it's the stuff that isn't reported, isn't being, um, analyzed and the way that we're deciding that something is significant, 
uh, is is very wanting, and we need to be really cautious about what we believe. Let's switch gears a little bit. I wanted to ask you about uh, art. So, uh, can mm-hmm. you tell can you tell listeners that aren't familiar with it wh- the rundown? What is art, and how it can help people? That's great. After I just went on and on about evidence. We're going to talk about art. <laughs> um, active release Good treatment. Time, I, I started it because I took my, uh, when I was in grad school, I uh, went out to Indianapolis to study with Bill Hartman um, in my orthopedic rotation. And if your listeners aren't familiar with Bill, he's uh, in men's health advisory board and he's uh, the co-owner of IFAST out there with um, um, doing some like really great work out there. Yeah. Um, so, ART is it's a soft tissue approach. Um, it's kind of very similar to things like pin and stretch techniques and myofascial techniques and stuff like that. Um, what does it do? I have no idea because what they claim is certainly not evidenced. So, and when we get into myofascial stuff, uh, it is almost certainly not the case that we're truly affecting the plastic quality of myofascia. Um, so, the claim is that ART works with muscle, tendon, connective tissue, um, and in, in a similar way that we might consider the general myofascial approach. Um, I don't believe that for a moment that that's what's actually happening. The, the, the amount of pressure and force required to manipulate fascia is with almost 100% uh, within the human body with rare exceptions like nasal fashion and stuff like that, we don't have the ability to apply enough force to do that. So I think that the, the, the answer is that we have to reconsider what we're doing when we apply myofascial techniques. And it doesn't mean that they don't necessarily work clinically. I've seen a lot of wonderful success using ART. I probably use it as a basis of uh, guy, at least 70% of my manual treatments and manipulations and, and stuff like that too. But um, what you'll find is if you believe that there's an aspect um, of a patient's presentation that can be helped through what would traditionally be like a soft tissue approach, I think that ART probably works very well. I don't know if it works any better than any other technique because I've never seen a comparison. Okay. Um, and I've never produced, a, you know, done so myself, but I have seen some very, very quick responses for whatever is happening for whatever the reason. Um, but quick responses think, in terms of what, what have um, you seen, I guess? Alleviation of pain, increase in range of motion, you know, the type of things that you would hope to, to see after applying a, a soft tissue technique, okay. you know? Okay. Um, and you're talking like a single treatment. Okay. You know, you do a couple passes of this and then you tell them to check their range again, their pain response, everything is lower, Every, you know, range is better, pain is lower, that sort of thing. Um, and again, I don't know if that works any better or worse than anything else that you might have you know, apply a soft tissue treatment to, but it, uh, it clinically, I, I do enjoy using it. And I think that it has clinical value, but again, why it works, I'm not going, I'm not going there in terms of like the, the myofascial stuff. Cause I don't, I've never seen evidence that would support the idea that we're affecting myofascia and we may be affecting the neuromuscular system. And I think that that is most likely what we're doing. Um, and I've, I've personally experimented with deeper pressures and lighter pressures and, and specifically in ART, it's not really supposed to be a deep pressure. It's supposed to allow the sliding of the tissue under the thumb. And again, if we're doing that or not, I don't know, but, um, I think that most likely we're working on neuromuscular 
system when we're using our, our manual treatments. We see that evidence in a lot of different converging lines, you know, manipulations, mobilizations, soft tissue. We see things that appear to be changes in the neuromuscular system itself. So my best guess is that's what's actually happening here. Okay. Jonathan, just I wonder if you could um, tell people where, who should they go to for art if, they're, if they've heard about this and they're interested in it? Um, is it just physical therapists, strength coaches, athletic trainers? Who, who is qualified to um, do this? Right. It's, it's anyone that, that has a manual uh, treatment license. So that can be chiropractors. Chiropractors use this a lot, okay. um, especially because at, at least I, I believe that their training soft tissue approach is probably limited. Um, and it was developed by a chiropractor, Michael Leahy. Um, so you see a lot of chiropractors use it. Physical therapists will use it. Athletic trainers, um, massage therapists. So anyone that can, that can legally put their hands on you in a treatment effect are allowed to uh, sit for the course. It's three courses that you go through. You go through uh, spine, upper extremities, and lower extremities. Um, I did all that when I was in grad school, actually. So I graduated with full ART certification. Gotcha. Okay. Um, but yeah, it, it, anyone like that, they will typically um, they'll typically like advertise that they're ART uh, certified. And certainly, I mean, I think that I don't know that. I can say that this is what you have to do and just to be intellectually honest, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know that I can say this is what you need to do. Yeah. But like I said, from like my personal experience, um, I think that it does have benefit and, uh, I, you know, would continue uh, using the approach, but. Okay. All right. Uh, here's a question that, uh, I was curious, I was wondering whether I should bring up or not, but I, th- I think I will go ahead and ask you. So what is your take on a recent article it was published, uh, several months ago actually now, but, mm-hmm. uh, the article is rip a toe goes off. Right. And I wonder, and you actually, you and Brett did a podcast episode on this, but mm-hmm. I wonder if you could touch on this briefly and kind of what, what's your kind of top line thought on this article and where, where exactly he was going with this. I've, I've read it a couple of times. Right. I'm, I'm right. still not totally clear on it to be honest. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of all over the place. Um, because, you know, his rants are kind of like that. Well, for, first um, of all, I should say that I absolutely love Mark Ripito. I mean, starting strength is, is a game changer for barbell training. Sure. It's just incredible. Um, sure. So let me just say that right off the bat. All right. Yeah, I, I was pretty – I mean, we, we went through it. You know, some of the feedback from that episode was fantastic because it was basically like – you know, it was all like confirmation bias type of stuff, honestly. Like, I mean, there were some people that said, yeah. you know, I hadn't thought of it this way and, and whatever. But a lot of the stuff that I was reading – you know, like if you were on his forums, I mean, we were just like, oh my God, we were destroyed on his forums. And then if you were on like a physical therapy forum, they were like, we were like heralded as like the saviors, you know, but <laughs> um, essentially in terms of physical therapy, he was kind of just, well, he, he claimed that we had, um, and I'm paraphrasing, so don't yeah. like, call me up and tell me that I'm, you know, strawmanning his argument, but right. he was basically saying that we're kind of shysters. Um, that we're not really doing anything and that we're just, you know, to get someone feeling better, just get them stronger or something like that. Um, I can respect the idea that there are, there's sometimes it, it appears that, um, we're a little wishy-washy, you know, um, yeah. it's very different dealing with someone that's in pain versus someone that's not. Um, I think one of the best things about, you know, starting off my career as a personal trainer is that it tends to inform my physical therapy a lot. Um, you know, there's a time and place for dealing with the, the sensitized patient that's in pain versus being able to recognize when they're transitioning from a patient that lives with pain versus a patient that is no longer living with pain. 
you know, and to be able to address that and adjust accordingly to see that they, you know, get back out there um, efficiently. You know, if I'm working with someone that, you know, they're active and I've never gotten them past like some, you know, TheraBand stuff, I'm probably not doing a great job in getting them back to their activity levels, even if they're not experiencing pain anymore. Right. Um, but his argument was kind of like, we're all a bunch of like wimps and we're full of it anyway. And there's no such thing as, um, as muscle, like muscle dysfunction in terms of like firing, you know, either muscle fires or it doesn't, which is not true. We know that through evidence and, and the, and a muscle and the, the neuromuscular junk unit can have, you know, we have levels of, of firing potential. We can fire muscle hundred percent or some people just aren't able, capable of, of, um, using hundred percent of the available muscle that they could. And that is an evidence thing. So he was really ranting and I felt that he was ranting about stuff that he really wasn't educated in. And, um, and that makes whatever point you might make, in my opinion, it, it kind of renders it pretty weak because now you're basing stuff off of things that are simply untrue that, are, that, are, you know, a literature survey would tell you, Oh yeah, no, I guess I'm wrong about that. Now I appreciate the idea that, um, every personal trainer seemingly kind of goes in and goes, Oh, your, your glutes aren't functioning and your, your, you know, this isn't functioning and that isn't functioning. And, and you can't really claim that. But I think what you can say is let's get this stronger. Let's get this movement more coordinated, whether or not that's a firing deficiency. I don't know, unless I'm doing a superimposed burst test to find out. And I don't think many places are, but we can still kind of work. We can use that information to inform us that by, you know, developing their coordination and their, their neuromuscular coordination and their strength, we may improve on a firing potential if they do indeed have a decreased firing function, you know, in glutes or wherever. Um, so I think that that if, if I were to read that, that article, I think that that's probably a more let's say sound version of what he was trying to argue. Okay. Um, but unfortunately I really, to be honest, I just couldn't get past the, the kind of just blasting of the industry for, for what appeared to be just his observation of, I don't know, some, like someone's blogs or something. So, yeah, it was um, it was really it, interesting. You know, like I said, I, I had a tough time getting a handle on kind of really where it was going and where the yeah. the criticism, you know, on, on the PTs was coming from. And yeah. I, again, I'm a former it, PT. I've been out of PT for a while. But mm-hmm. one thing about this, so I did want to ask you about. So one of the contributors to the article was a PT. Uh, this guy, yeah. John John, John Petruzzo. and yeah. uh, so obviously, I mean, he did have some insight from a physical therapy standpoint in the article. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you yeah, know anything about that. I don't know him personally, so okay. I don't know exactly what uh, his insight would or would not have been. I think that either way, um, you can kind of it, – it's, it's still an appeal to an expert, meaning that you're taking one person's opinion and then saying, oh, well, you know, he's a physical therapist, so it must be fact because that's his opinion. Yeah. Um, and, and we just can't do that. And again, like I said, I mean there, there were things that were patently false in, in the diatribe. You know, and the idea that we either fire or we don't, and the muscle would be dead if we didn't fire it, um, and it's just not true. So, and that, that's that's been research that's been out for like 20, 30 years. So, um, I agree. Like I said, I agree with the idea that that we can't clinically call that unless we have you know superimposed bursting and, and things like that to validate that statement. But the fact that that phenomenon exists is absolutely the case. 
Um, so having a physical therapist there, that's fine. And I think that you and I could also equally, you know, lambast physical therapy. We could pick a few things that we've seen. And all that really is, is, is what's called a hasty generalization. It means that we're taking our experience. Maybe we've seen a few therapists like this and we're deciding that that applies to an entire field and we don't have that ability. You know, we, we, who it's, it goes back to the idea that what we were discussing with, um, with uh, population sizes and in research, you know, a study of 30 people does not necessarily um, apply to the entire population. We hope that it does. We hope that it's representative, but we really can't say that it is. And when you've got um, sample sizes that small, it's more likely the case that it is not. Now we're taking someone's opinion based on how many therapists he worked with and seen. Right. You know, is it, is it 30? Is it yeah. 20? Is it 10 right. in his area, in his, you know, and, and he's not controlling for anything. He's just seeing something. Does he know every treatment approach performed by every therapist that he saw and every patient's presentation and everything that happened, you know, so you can't really base anything on that. And at best, the only thing that you can say is from my observations of these therapists, not knowing the full story, this is what I saw whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, so right. um, I think that that's, that's the issue there. And, and you, you put, you put like a physical therapist in there for credibility and whether or not they, they agree a hundred percent or he contributed something that wasn't part of the article, like who knows, but it still becomes a matter of it just being someone's opinion. And that opinion is in no way, shape or form evidence to fact. So, you know, again, like, I mean, I can make an opinion based on therapists that I know, and it doesn't mean anything either. Maybe I work with elite therapists, or maybe I work with really bottom of the pile therapists, right? You know, who knows? Yep. Good stuff. All right. So now would be a good time. I have a couple more questions for you. I I don't want to take too much of your time, but uh, this will be a great time to ask you your thoughts on the state of the fitness industry. I'm really curious, uh, what your thoughts are on this. <laughs> these, lead, these lead-ins are great after I bitched about, like, you can't know, you know but um, <laughs> I think that the industry, it's, it's, it's certainly interesting right now from, again, from what I observe, you know, discussions on Facebook with, you know, I have a lot of trainers that are, you know, friends of mine on Facebook and stuff, and yep. I always like to have friends there and stuff, but um, it's, it's interesting because I, I feel on, on the one hand, the industry is probably moving towards more scientifically observant industry you know we're not dealing with like the the i don't know dance aerobics of like the early 80s and stuff like that you know where yeah. um yeah, there's yeah. there's at least a portion of the of the training community that's that's trying to use science um and to use that to inform them as you know as an evidence-based area in practice on the other hand i think that there's a there's a very big problem in the fact that they're not necessarily trained to do so and evidence is a language Research is a language, and you have to understand how to analyze this, this research. Um, I, I am a reviewer. I, I review research uh, for a publication. Um, it's incredibly detailed. You know, you're talking about spending hours on a single paper. Yeah. Um, and the the I hate to say it, but I think that the average trainer is probably reading a couple of abstracts to you know, to, to substantiate what they already believe. And that's not evidence-based practice, unfortunately. So I I'd like to say that by and large, there is a move in, a, in the right direction. And that doesn't necessarily include every trainer or every coach or whatever. But I think, unfortunately, there's also a lot of pseudoscience in the industry that still exists. Um, people pick up on pet theories, uh, things that have actually been disproven and they don't know it. 
and they, they repeat it as gospel. Um, and that is going to always be a, a difficult thing. Now, every industry has that. Physical therapy has it. Yeah. Medicine has that. Every industry has it. But I think that if, if personal training wants to be taken seriously um, and the ACSM, uh, American College of Sports Medicine, is, is you know put forth this idea of, of uh, uh, health as medicine or training as medicine or something like that, um, where they're trying to be a part of that continuum. And I think that that's rightfully so. I think the personal trainer has a vastly important uh, role to fulfill in the health continuum. When you look at other countries, their health systems are greatly based on the idea of preventative, get, be healthy, don't come in when you're sick, make your body healthy so that you won't get sick in the first place. Um, so I think it has a huge role. But in order to do that, we need to educate our trainers. We need to have... Um, barriers to entry that are far greater than what we have currently because we need to ensure that there's a there's a minimum of efficiency and quality of education that we just don't have. There's no standardization yeah. for personal training right now. So um, I, I wonder if in the next five, 10 years or maybe even more, but I wonder if there's going to come to a head a little bit because I, I don't necessarily, I don't think that we're ever going to see something like a national exam the way like physical therapy has. Uh, because I think we'd have to prove that personal training can produce injury or or um, negative health consequences when done poorly. And besides like the random you know uh, lawsuit that occurs here and there, I don't think that we really have will ever have evidence to do that. So I think that it'll fall short of a national um, licensure. But I do hope that there will be a greater push in um, at least in getting certification by the by the certifying bodies that probably matter, the NSEA, the ACSM. The ACSM is the only one that requires you for at least their higher certification levels to have a degree in exercise of some kind, you know? So um, is it is it something that's that makes sense to, to basically allow someone to sit for a test, never have an education in the program, in, in what it is that they're doing, and then set them free to go and work with people? Um, I hope that that changes. I hope that that gets to be a better situation and I don't know that it will, but hopefully with this push towards the idea of evidence, even if it's sometimes misguided because people don't really know how to analyze that evidence, I think that that's still a fairly good thing. And I, I think that I'm seeing trainers that are pretty damn impressive. Yeah, um, yeah. you know, again, there, it, it runs the gamut, but there are some trainers that it's just, I'm amazed at what they are familiar with and what they're aware of and the type of quality work that they do. Um, it's, it's nice to see that. Yeah. You know, I'll say that, you know, I, I do attend quite a bit of, um, you know, workshops and seminars myself. Mm-hmm. And I really think that the, the game is being elevated with the, the knowledge of trainers out there. And, you know, a lot, a lot of the colleagues that, that I see out there, I mean, they really, they're sharp people, you know, and they're just yeah. looking at things that, you know, again, having the physical therapy background that we have, you know, there's really understanding anatomy and um, biomechanics mm-hmm. of movement and things like that. And it's, right. that, I, that is good. But I, I, yeah. I hear what you're saying about kind of having some sense of standardization within the industry. And uh, yeah. hopefully over the next five to 10 years, we will have something like that in place. I would hope so. And I honestly don't have faith that that will be. And like I said, I mean, I'm also, I'm not necessarily one to say, oh, we should have some type of oversight when no oversight is, is evidenced, you know, to be the case. I mean, just having rules for no reason isn't really productive either. And, and 
because I, I don't know that that will ever really be the case. I don't know that we'll ever see a drive towards, you know, again, like if a medical doctor screws up, they can kill someone. If a physical therapist screws up, I, we could kill someone, but, you know, we can still harm someone greatly. Right. So right. there is a requirement to say we need to have a bare minimum standard. So in the least, uh, the worst physical therapist theoretically would do no harm, you know. Um, I think there's a lot of potential for that in, in exercise too, of course. But if, if we don't have the evidence to support that, then it's just conjecture. And we shouldn't be you know, licensing and requiring people to sit for type of state testing sort of thing when we don't really have a cause for it. So right. um, I think that it would be a good thing, but I, I don't know that that's ever going to happen. And to be honest with you, the politics of it, I mean, you've got what happens to the NSCA and the ACSM and uh, you know, NASM when you have a national licensure. What happens to them? So yeah. their lobbying <laughs> would be enough to, to probably kill any sort of bill like that anyway. Yeah. Um, so I'm just not sure that that'll ever happen. But I think, you know, and to your point, I think that that educational push is wonderful. But there is a dark side to that and something that I have seen where it becomes, you know, everyone's opinion. So we have expert opinions that are that are ruling the land. Um, I just gave a presentation for Move Ottawa, which was a, a personal trainer specific conference. And the whole presentation is about it's, it's not just about evidence, but it's about why you shouldn't be listening to experts, at least without checking the resources, checking them. Um, so there are absolutely times where you get this incredible information coming out of people. I mean, we, we learn through experts. We learn from teachers as kids. We learn you know, through professors in college. But there comes a point where you have to check that evidence yourself because if I say something that is inaccurate – and I didn't read a study well or I, you know, kind of spun it to support what I'm saying and you don't check that, you're going to practice based on my lie, you know, my misunderstanding of what, what the evidence actually is. And I think that we see a ton of that. Um, we're, you know, we've got people that are practicing this lower cross syndrome, jaundice stuff. That was just proven 35 years ago, you know, and, and people are still, you know, and, and postural assessments that have been shown to be at least in a minimum unreliable. Um, but we've got studies of like 600 laborers and pelvic inclination has nothing to do with low back pain. And yet we've still, tell me how many times you come across, you know, the sales pitch of like, you know, fix your anterior tilt because that's causing your pain. It's not. And so I think that there are some very negative consequences to that approach in education. Right. Um, but, you know, the, and, and I do think that there, there are real consequences to that. And again, if we, if we you know, source the, the pain research, the pain literature, we can absolutely um, provoke pain in someone just by suggesting that this stuff is true. Um, especially in someone that would be, you know, otherwise inclined to believe it. So there are some real consequences to this kind of stuff. And I think that this is a good first step, but I would love to see an industry that is, that has a better understanding of what research actually is and what evidence actually is. So we stop getting this, this nonsense of like, you know, if you're truly evidence-based, you're three years behind the curve. When I just, <laughs> I just named two things where these guys are 30 years behind the curve yeah. because they don't follow evidence. You know what I mean? So right, right. it's nonsense and we need to embrace how we use research um, to inform our decision-making and not play this game of like, I only cherry pick the stuff that I like. 
Yeah. You know? Jonathan, let me ask you, what uh, journals do you recommend for, for people, let's say for trainers, coaches that are listening mm-hmm. that want to really elevate their um, education? What, what do you recommend? Yeah. I, you know, the NSCA journals are always a, a good bet. It's, yeah. a, it's a good quality journal. I think it depends on what type of area that you're really involved in and interested in. The JOSPT from the, uh, you know, physical therapy journals, those are those are good. The North American Sports Medicine Journal. Um but, um, I, you know, I hesitate, not, not so much. They should basically what you have to do before any of this is really get yourself grounded in, in how to read research, how to read evidence before you start right. looking at the journals. Now, part of that process is reading. So you have to read papers. You have to read tons of papers. Um, you also have to understand statistics and I am not a statistician, you know, so I have conversations with, with, uh, Colleagues, you know, Brian Chung is a statistician. I mean, he is incredible. He's an MD, PhD, um, and he runs um, evidence-based fitness. The blog is fantastic. Yeah. Um, you know, we'll have discussions, and he and I'm like, yeah, I don't even know where you, what you're talking about. You know, he'll see faults in papers, and I'm like, whoa, okay, because I don't have a, a grasp of, of statistics the way that he does. I mean, he, we were having a conversation the other day, and I said something, you know, about just running something through SPSS, which is your statistic, you know, analysis software that you use when you produce research and kind of like as a joke and he just went off on a on a tirade about how it's crap because when he produces research he doesn't use it he does it essentially by hand yeah and i'm like okay man that's just uh way beyond my <laughs> knowledge and awareness of stats so it is language in and of itself and absolutely uh, is. research is valuable but if you don't know how to find the faults and every research paper has faults. Yes. Um, if you don't know how to do that, then you're probably not going to get much out of it other than, Oh, I don't know. This paper says one thing, this other says the other, and I don't know what to do. You know, when you start to understand how to use research, you realize why, even though this one paper contradicts the other, we're still not contradicting ourselves in the research. You know what I mean? So, um, Read the journals, read the journals that are specific to your field. There's always like one or two top journals. Like, you know, the Journal of Applied Physiology is nice, but if you're not a clinical exercise physiologist, you're probably not getting a ton out of that. Right. Um, but if you don't know how to interpret these papers, you're, you're going to have a tough time. So um, start reading them, but look up everything, everything yeah. that you don't understand. It is a time-intensive process, but in the end, you get better and you start to find articles that – will help you to do this sort of thing and help you to understand why, you know, most re- published research is false and what the problems are there and what the problems are with the, the general statistics and things like that. So, yeah, you know, I'll just make one comment, uh, kind of what you said about, you know, understanding research and, you know, I, I do get the journal of strength and conditioning, uh, research. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic, but mm-hmm. it, it really does take a lot of time, like to, yeah. to read that CrossFit study that we talked about earlier. I yeah. read it. And had to reread it and had to yep. think about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yep. it's it's a lot of work, actually. You yep. know, and you can't a, you can't go through and read the whole journal like that. There's just no way. I mean, at least no, I can't. But if I can get an article or two and really dissect it like that, that's what I try to do. Right, but, right. Um, if you can find a better analysis or a systematic review, that's always helpful because that will um, generalize what the research in that area is most likely to represent. And again, even that is an approach. That can be biased according to the author, but um, it's our best bet in terms of like a synthesis of understanding. So yeah. in in stuff like meta-analysis, you get um, 
you get treatment effects and and stuff that usually isn't involved. Or you may see a bunch of papers and think that they're all good, and then you get the meta-analysis that points out that none of them are really quality papers, and so you shouldn't be taking anything from them. And you're like, oh, okay. You know what I mean? So yeah, uh, these right. things are helpful. Um, but absolutely, when you when you look at a paper, my I probably read a paper that I'm reviewing, oh boy, I don't know, like five or six times over. And then breaking down section by section as I'm putting in my comments for the authors, right? You know, and it is a it is an intent. It takes it takes at least a week. I read it, I synthesize some thoughts. I go back to it the next day. I reread it, see what my thoughts were back then, see if I have any additional ones. I read it out of order. I see if the you know if, if what their conclusions are supported by what their findings were. It is it is a very intensive yeah. process, and even best researchers still take probably a couple of hours on a paper to truly understand it. I mean, there are, there are levels of understanding and research uh, and there are, there are approaches that you take where you really want to basically reproduce the study in your head. Yeah. You know, what were these individuals doing? What was their workout? What do I understand about their workout? What was the results? How were they tested? What could they have done differently? How would I have done it differently? Is there a reason why they did it that way? Is the, the, the way they collected results good should they have used another technique you know what is is emg good is it surface emg is it you know right it it is an incredible i mean you basically recreate it's like it's like looking at a photograph and then deciding okay and going off and through memory taking the same photo in the same place you know what i mean like you got to know it to that level of detail oh there there was a bird flying overhead and was at that point you know what i mean like um it's a very time thing now that's not to scare someone off because I don't want them to go to hell with that. I'm not doing this. Yeah, right. But the realization that when you read an abstract, you're not using evidence-based practice. Um, but there is there's a nice thing out of it where as you start to do this and as you become a little bit more proficient in reading research, it really changes the way you see things. Um, that's the beauty of it. It changes the way that you think. It changes the way that you approach problems and the way that you think about the answers. It is, it's absolutely wonderful. And when people ask me like what the best aspects of like my, my residency were, um, I think that was more than any technique that I learned or any, you know, type of way of writing a note or whatever. It was this idea that, you know, as a resident, I, I couldn't scratch my nose without a paper to suggest that I should do that. You know, and it really makes you realize not only how little we, we truly know in terms of what we do, but how to kind of conceptualize that and to start to realize like maybe it's maybe I don't need to have an answer for every question because no one does, you know, and it, and it almost becomes freeing. Um, and that's why I, I really have enjoyed that process of learning how to read research more efficiently. And it is still a process. I mean, I will be doing this for the next, you know, for the rest of my career. I'll be yeah. learning how to be a better reader. Uh, because we need that um, within our field, within any field. So. Fantastic. Well, you just inspired me, man, to you know, <laughs> dig deeper into this stuff. Absolutely. I, I do love it. I do love it. But I, yeah. I actually, you're right. You're right on. You know, we really need to to dig into this stuff and, and understand it better and be more critical of, of what the studies um, tell us and what, what the loopholes are in yeah. Data, yeah. So. You know, it's, it's funny. And I think that people kind of go one way or another. Like I, I remember sitting... Um, I was the, the TA of the, the orthopedic class, obviously, as, as the orthopedic resident. And uh, Dr. Tara Jo Manal, um, who's, you know, if you follow research, you may have heard of her, but um, she was giving the spine lecture. And it was a breath of fresh air 
to me because I came from a Paris background uh, in my program. So everything, you know, it's every vertebral body in this position, that position, all these details. Yeah. And then she comes in and says, okay, we don't know any of this. We don't know any of that. You know, we have no accuracy in terms of our palpatory skills. We're going to disagree on what level we're at. We're going to do this, we're going to that. And basically you came out of there going, wow, we don't know anything. And for (laughs) some people that's really scary. Yeah. You know, they want to have details. They want to know what they're doing. For me, I loved it because yeah. I was like, wow, I can throw out all this Paris stuff. And right. it's not to say that Paris doesn't work because there's a difference between clinical effectiveness versus having a physiological basis for what you're doing. And I think people um, more often than not, far more often than not, confuse those two so that when you challenge the physiological basis, you know, when someone is talking about training your transverse abdominis to prevent back pain and you point out that that has never been um, highly evidenced and so they shouldn't be saying that, they take it as saying, oh, so you mean my training isn't working because I know that I'm curing my my people. And it's it's different. It's entirely different. Keep doing that. If you're finding clinical effectiveness, do it. But don't tell them that the reason why they feel better is because you somehow strengthened their transverse abdominis. Or, you know, like, so for instance, my, my fiance, and she's blogged about this, Marianne Kane, um, uh, check out myomytv.com and be amazed because she's wonderful. But um, <laughs> she's, she's dealt with, with uh, low back pain for a number of years uh, and was actually diagnosed with stuff, you know, crazy things that just, Clinically, I mean, just looking at her, I'm like, this isn't true. And she went to a, a medical doctor, you know, and did a follow-up checkup, and she was talking about her low back. And he said, oh, just, you know, keep doing what you're doing because you'll need to get stronger. And I'm like, really? Because this is a girl that can deadlift like, you know, 120 kilo or whatever on like a really great day. You mean that she's weak? Like, that's nonsense. It is not because she's weak, <laughs> you know, and, and we've made some changes to her programming and change the way that she looks and approaches her pain yeah. and it's almost gone. And she's been dealing with this for like five, 10 years. Wow, um, nice. it's, you know, it's the type of thing where understanding that what you do to, to correct a problem is not necessarily what caused it. And what you believe is happening is not necessarily what's happening. Those are three separate things. You know, and if we can get our, our heads around that and understand that clinical effectiveness is not the same as physiological theory, um, we're going to be much better off for that. So I think that, that that's what evidence to me is. You start to understand what the differences are in, in the research so that when you say, oh, look at that, that the reason that I thought this was happening, this paper shows that it's completely not accurate. Like that's cool, and then you just keep going what you're doing because you know that there's clinical effectiveness studies that show that this works just not for the reasons that you thought it was, as opposed to the individual that is kind of married to that approach, and then they see a paper and they per- they perceive that as being hacking to that approach, and they're like, oh, oh, so the research says that I'm not getting results. Screw you, research. You know, and <laughs> right, it's it's right. not that's not evidence based practice. Yeah, yeah. You know, so. Well, there's there's a lot to get out of that. (laughs) Yeah, no, this has been fantastic. I mean, um, you laid a lot of knowledge here and, uh, I I really thank you for this. I hope that, uh, listeners get a lot of value from this. Uh, where, where can people find you and where do you want to direct people? I know that you have, uh, two podcasts, right? Yep. Yep. Um, I, every once in a while, I'm still on the fit cast, uh, (laughs) probably on for about like 
200, 250 episodes or so as part of the round table. Yeah. Um, Kevin, who created the FitCast, is doing more like interviews now, but uh, every once in a while I still hop on. So you can go to thefitcast.com and check out some of our older podcasts. Not too old because then probably everything I said was crap, but um, <laughs> things change. Yeah. Um, and that's where we just kind of talk about general stuff and, and field questions about personal training or injury or whatever. Right. Um, and then I do the Strength of Evidence podcast that comes out much more infrequently because we do a lot of work <laughs> to yeah. do it. But um, that's with my colleague, Brett Contreras. And th- that's we do exactly this. We look at claims in the industry, what someone is saying. Um, and then we look at the evidence for that and say, is this actually true or not based on what the, the research is, is telling us? So it's, you know, we've gotten a lot of really, really great feedback, not only from people that are trying to be more evidence-based, yeah. but from researchers too that are like, we love what you guys do. So Excellent. Um, that's a really nice, yeah, it's a that really is, nice thing. That's fantastic. Uh, and, and then um, you can kind of dial me up at uh, JonathanFast.com, which is my website that like for the last like year and a half I've been looking to redo, but I'll probably redo it this year <laughs> um, and start blogging again and stuff. Uh, you can get me on Facebook. And I think it's like, um, John Fass or something, but if you just do a search for Jonathan Fass, I'll pop up. Um, and then Twitter, uh, at John Fass, uh, you can catch me there too. So excellent float, float all over the place. Yeah. And I'll attach uh, links for all the stuff in the show notes as well. So listeners can, can go right there and get all your contact info. So one last question, and I, I don't know mm-hmm. if you maybe already answered already with what we were talking about with research there, but I like to ask, so someone that's listened this far, what's the one big action they can take and use this information right now after this interview? Yeah, I, I honestly do think that, that, research understanding research is is what does that yeah um understanding because really what that is when you become more proficient in research i think what happens is you become by nature a skeptic and that's a good thing yeah. because there are a lot of claims in in any field in physical therapy and in, in personal training and health and whatever um some of these claims have validity and some of them do not uh being able to weed through the ocean of information you know dr google is great but the problem is that if you don't quite know what the, the research, the evidence is suggesting is true or not true, it's, it can be difficult to, to decide that something is valuable versus not valuable. So when you understand how to use the research as, as a resource, how to base basic clinical decisions, not individual decisions, because evidence-based practice is not just do what the research says and don't think. But when you have that basis, when you understand um, what we, the accumulated bodies of research in the, in the areas that you work in specifically, um, it really does change everything. Uh, it changes how you evaluate claims. It changes how you, the resources that you use versus the resources that you decide will not be beneficial or contradict what is known. Um, and it really, as, as much as it, li- by limiting the amount of information coming in, it frees you. Because it allows you to use what is most valuable and to discard things that probably do not add value. Um, so that, that, in my personal experience, it just changed everything. Uh, the, the more that I became uh, familiar and comfortable with research, the, the far more. And, and to, to be honest there, I can work with patients now that I never could have before understanding research and understanding areas of research and what they were telling me to do. And beforehand, I never... You know, the, the, the example of my fiance, I never could have helped her previously. And I think because I um, had a better understanding of 
the type of area um, of treatment that, that was effective for her, I was able to do that um, really very quickly. And it was, I, I got better results than I even expected because she'd been a chronic patient for years. And it really was within a couple of weeks that she was feeling remarkably better. Um, so understand that aspect, understand what evidence-based practice is, uh, understand how to utilize it. And I think that you will absolutely see some amazing changes in the way that you approach your field, regardless of what that field is. Excellent. Excellent advice. And I'll just say one comment about that is um, if you're not a member of the NSCA, there are a lot of research trials that are available for free online mm-hmm. and even beyond mm-hmm. the abstract. Certainly you can get all the current, the latest abstracts on PubMed, but there, if you look, um, there are, there's quite a bit of research out there, fully published uh, trials that you can download yeah. if you search. <laughs> uh, yeah. One article, as a matter of fact, I just mentioned this a couple of podcast episodes ago. Another area of interest for me is sports nutrition. So the Journal mm-hmm. of International Society of Sports Nutrition, that journal is completely free, free open access. Yeah. So you don't even need yeah. to be yeah. a member. You can go and download all the research totally for free right there. And yeah. that's a great, uh, excellent resource. So. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much. This has really, really been awesome, and I hope that uh, people get a lot of value from it. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this, um, and I wish you the best with your uh, upcoming wedding. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. All right. Well, I'm going to do a quick wrap-up here, really quick, of the uh, great interview with Dr. Jonathan Foss, and I hope again that you got value from it. I know that there was a lot of information covered a lot of different topics covered in this interview, and I will have links for all of the things that we discussed in this episode in the show notes at ardellatraining.com. So that will be under episode number 44, links for the things that we talked about. All right, so the big takeaway at the end there was really to understand how to use research to make better decisions to improve our training, and I think that is really important information to know. And, you know, like I mentioned, there is a lot of free information online to look at the research to answer questions. And one of the big tips that he mentioned in there is to look at meta-analysis trials. And if you're not familiar with that term, a meta-analysis is really where you pull together all of the studies in a given topic and you look at, hey, what do all the studies show about this particular topic? So that is a really great way to look at what the research says because remember one study alone never really answers the question it's just a piece in the puzzle and it's a step in answering more questions but there's all if you look at any study for example they always end with further research will be required and that is certainly true so one study is not definitive of everything and we really need to look at all of the the questions and better understand the research. But it certainly will help us to train better and to get better results. So that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week for another great episode. So until then, train strong, and I'll see you next week. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Ardella Training Podcast. Go to ardellatraining.com right now to join Scott's tribe of passionate fitness enthusiasts. Get valuable updates and resources that will help you take it to the next level. Train strong. We'll catch you next time on the Ardella Training Podcast.